Welcome to the Indie Matters Podcast, where we talk about the issues that matter most to Nevada. I'm John Ralston, the editor of the Nevada Independent. Each week, we'll discuss matters of importance that we covered and look ahead to what's coming in the Nevada Independent. We're a nonprofit news site. You can find us at thenevadaindependent.com. I'm joined tonight by one of our great reporters, Megan Messerly is here, and making her Indie Matters debut, our managing editor, who, yes, is also great, Elizabeth Thompson. Welcome, ladies. Thanks so much, John. Great to be here, John. So uh, lots of news going on, even as we are recording this podcast on Thursday afternoon. Uh, with the big story, uh, let, let's start with this, uh, Megan, since you've already got a piece up on the site that I mentioned, the NevadaIndependent.com, uh, and that is a story of this new Senate version of the health care bill, and all eyes are again on Nevada because Dean Heller is a pivotal vote. What's going on? What do we know as of about 3 o'clock on Thursday? Right. So as of what we know, so what happened this morning is um, Senate Republicans released a new version of their health care bill. If everyone remembers what happened before the 4th of July recess, they decided, you know, the votes weren't there. They were going to sort of simmer on it over the recess, come back um, with a new draft. And so that came out this morning, made a bunch of minor changes. Um, It includes this amendment from uh, Senator Ted Cruz um, to appease some of the the concerns conservatives um, that basically allows insurance companies um, to offer, they have to offer one ACA, what's so-called ACA compliant plan. So it has to meet the mandates of the Affordable Care Act. Um, But they can offer cheaper plans, higher deductible plans, um, as long as they offer at least one ACA compliant plan. So that's sort of a controversial part of it. Um, It was included in brackets. And so the the Congressional Budget Office is supposed to analyze the bill with and without that amendment. And then it makes a bunch of other changes to try and appease some of the Republican senators that had concerns. The reason the first version of the bill didn't move forward is because the Republican votes weren't there. The Democrats are united in opposition to this bill, but not even the Republicans are all on board with this bill. And so these changes were supposed to bring some of the Republicans back on board. There's extra money for opioid uh, to fight the opioid epidemic, um, some other money for states to help them implement various parts of this. And so what happened this morning is as of, well, this afternoon when we're recording this on Thursday, there are two senators right now who are who have said that they'll vote no on this procedural motion to move the bill forward. And now we're waiting to see if there's a third, because if there's a third, that means it can't can't move forward. Um, They need to at least have at least they can't have any more than two voting against it. And so that's why, again, Senator Dean Heller is sort of the at the crux of this, because he has said right now that he is undecided on that vote. Um, he's been in meetings, we know, with uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. We don't really know where he's going to go on it. He hasn't signaled a lot publicly since um, his big sort of pub- public pronouncement that he was against the first version of the bill, that he was going to vote no on that. So we're kind of waiting to see where things go from here. This is the kind of crazy things that we have to explain sometimes in, in the Nevada Independent, Elizabeth and that is this procedural stuff that goes on in the U.S. Senate, which is like the craziest place to do business. There's a motion to proceed to the bill that comes first, uh, and, and, th- and that will be a majority vote, and that essentially is starting debate, and then they have to get to the bill itself. And as editors, we have to make a decision. You know, Megan's written this story. She's eager to see her name and picture out there on the website <laughs> with the story, and we have to decide what to post. And Dean Heller keeps saying the same thing all day, which is... He's undecided, (laughs) which is a surprise, right? Because he said in his joint press conference with Governor Sandoval very recently um, that a health care reform bill that did not 
keep Medicaid in the picture, which means uh, all of the Nevadans that are newly covered under Medicaid, under the Affordable Care Act. Plus. Yes, 200,000 plus people. Um, he would not agree to a version of the bill that did not uh, include that. And that was Governor Sandoval's position as well. That's been Sandoval's position all along since the beginning. First Republican governor uh, to embrace uh, the Medicaid aspect of the Affordable uh, Care Act. So I think uh, many of us were stunned this morning and are still stunned this afternoon um, that Heller, who said straight out, I will not support a version of the bill that does not include Medicaid, is undecided on this motion to proceed on a bill that is virtually unchanged in terms of the Medicaid aspect of the bill, from what we know. And we've been watching uh, Twitter, and and he has been actually caught by several journalists, a couple of whom <laughs> interacted with me and said that Heller is now becoming known for trying to avoid journalists in D.C., not that we at the Nevada Independent would know what that what that is like, uh-huh. and that he keeps saying uh, that he's undecided. But luckily, uh, Elizabeth, we have the uh, fortuitous happening of one of our reporters uh, being in a place where uh, she could grab uh, Brian Sandoval. And so let's talk about that a little bit. Yes, it's Michelle Rendalls. We sent her to Rhode Island to cover the National Governors Association Association's summer meeting. Uh, Governor Sandoval about to take over his chair, or maybe he already has. It's in transition right now from Virginia Governor Terry McAuliffe, so Sandoval heading up that organization. She was able to catch him in the hallway today and ask him a few questions, including uh, about this bill. Uh, and Sandoval basically said it. it's it, essentially it's unchanged uh, in terms of Medicaid. Um, and that he, so he essentially has the same concerns that he had before. Great concern. Great concern. Said. Yes. And so Michelle got, caught him and we were hoping that this whole this, this all would come together. Uh, Megan, we should we should tell our listeners uh, you've covered this from the beginning. Heller really has. Elizabeth mentioned that he was at this press conference with Sandoval. But even before that press conference, Heller has consistently said, I want to make sure the governor's OK. I want to make sure the governor's OK. So it's probably a reasonable conclusion that if the governor is not OK, it's going to be tough for Heller to be a yes on this, right? Yep. And I mean, he's, he said as much publicly, you know, he said that what the governor says matters. And so we know that, you know, what what the governor says, you know, Senator uh, Heller is going to be somewhere along those lines. And so, I mean, I think the fact that the governor said that today, that he seems to still be uncomfortable with the new version of the bill, um, probably signals maybe where Senator Heller's going. And if, if not, he's going to have to deal with the fact that he said that in the past, that, you know, he cares what the governor thinks, and he's going to have to explain why he's going against the governor. Yeah, I don't see him going against the governor. I just don't think that's possible. I think he has more to lose going against the governor than he does against his his, his own uh, party's leadership in, in, in the U.S. Senate. Don't you think, Elizabeth? I do think so, especially because he's now publicly come out uh, with Governor Sandoval on a very public stage and made that pronouncement. There's no going back for, for him on this Medicaid issue. That is uh, a sticking point uh, for certain. Uh, certainly, it's a difficult position for Heller. It's kind of a lose-lose, right? The GOP base is becoming increasingly enraged day by day that we're not getting a repeal and replace uh, on the Affordable Care Act. Uh, the Democrats are intractable on this as well. You know, they want to keep uh, Obamacare pretty much the way it is, uh, and he's getting slammed from both sides. Uh, and so, it's a difficult position for a senator to be in. Added to the mix 
mix and added to all the pressure is the fact that he is going to be the most vulnerable senator in the country uh, when the election comes around. Campaign season really is already nigh. We've got announcements uh, coming in weekly uh, now for filing. So, uh, and protests and ads against Heller have been going on not yes. for a week, but for weeks, even months. And from both sides, ads from Democrats, ads from uh, political action committees, ads uh, at one point which were yanked, but from the uh, group that was affiliated with the Trump administration were going after Heller on this. So he's taking it from all uh, all sides. Uh, I guess what I'm, I'm wondering about, uh, we both me- both Megan and I mentioned that we're doing, we're, te- we're recording this podcast on, on Thursday afternoon. By the time most people have heard this, Heller probably will have declared or they will pull- pulled the bill or somehow found a vote. They have no margin for error. And so it, it seems unlikely. I, I want to make sure that the, the people understand, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Megan, Heller did say the last time with the last version of the bill, which is Elizabeth points out, there's not much change in Medicaid in this one, that he would not just vote against the bill, but that he would vote along with Susan Collins and some others against the, the just even going to debate the bill, correct? Yep. He did say that. He said he was going to be a no on the, the motion to move forward with debate on the bill. So sort of the same situation we're facing now. And so I wonder, uh, assuming that, I mean, He is going to be in even bigger trouble than he's already in, I would think, is if he votes to proceed to the bill. Uh, How does he explain what changed? But I guess we should put this in all perspective as we kind of wrap up the discussion of this. It is July of 2017. And while I think, as as Elizabeth points out, a lot of the base is going to be enraged if Heller votes against this. Hugh Hewitt, the prominent commentator, radio host, is on Twitter saying if he votes against this, he's going to lose his reelection because he'll hemorrhage 25 to 30 percent of the base in the general election. I actually think it's much more of a problem for him in a low turnout primary here in Nevada, I guess we should, to some extent, maybe, Elizabeth, put this in perspective. There's like 400-odd days until until the election, 200-something, 250, 280, something like that until the primary. A lot can happen, right? We don't even know how significant this is going to be. Absolutely. And let's remember, looking back at history, how many times uh, when everyone was worked up on both sides of the political aisle did everyone say, oh, the election hinges on this, and this person's seats hinges on this vote and on this decision. And then 17 things more happen after that between that day and the time of the election, which changed the horizon, changed the optics. Um, So I would say this is not necessarily a predictor of what's going to happen to Dean Heller next year, either in the primary or the general. In any case, a senator has a civic obligation to a, keep his word, and B, vote, B, vote his conscience. Uh, and I think both those, those are things... such quaint <laughs> concepts. Do you really think you should be talking about those? I do. <laughs> uh, I think both of those things indicate that Heller, whether it's later today, tomorrow, or on the weekend, will most likely uh, not agree to, you know, with the motion to proceed, which means there won't be even a debate on this version of the bill, and they will have to go back to the drawing board again in the Senate. Uh, One last question on this, Megan. You don't see any chance, based on your reporting and and what what we know about this, that Heller could ever vote for a bill that has the kind of severe Medicaid cuts that the first one had? Because there's no way that Sandoval would sign off on that, right? No, and I mean, based on what Senator Heller said at that press conference, I mean, he was deeply concerned about cuts to Medicaid expansion, cuts to the program in the state. I mean, the state has truly restructured the way it's providing mental health services based on this Medicaid expansion. It would hurt the state. They'd have to just restructure structure everything entirely. And so he's really sort of boxed himself into this corner where I, I don't know what explanation he would give for changing it at this point after what he said. It would be quite the explanation. You're right if he had to explain that. All right, let's talk about another story that you worked on uh, this week, Megan. That's a visit 
uh, to Nevada uh, that, that suddenly came up. In fact, I think a lot of people who were involved in the visit didn't know about it till right before it happened. And that's the Attorney General of the United States, Jeff Sessions, who came here to talk about uh, an issue that you've been covering since the legislature. Yes. So Attorney General, U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions was here in Las Vegas. He was at the U.S. Attorney's Building in downtown Las Vegas. And he talked about a number of issues, but significantly among them, um, this issue of sanctuary cities or sanctuary jurisdictions. Um, it's something that has been sort of at the forefront of, of uh, the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department of their minds because Clark County has been labeled in the past as a sanctuary jurisdiction, as a non-compliant jurisdiction. So before and, you go on, I don't mean to interrupt you, sure. but let, let's not assume that everyone listening knows what these terms mean. In fact, there's actually controversy over what these terms mean, sanctuary city, sanctuary county. Try to explain that a little bit. Sure. So there are a lot of different definitions and sort of at its broadest term, it's cities that aren't complying with federal immigration authorities to some degree. You know, they're not sharing information. They're not detaining people. It can mean a whole bunch of different things, depending on who you talk to. Um, the sort of legal definition that's now come down with all this talk of executive orders and taking federal funding away potentially from sanctuary jurisdictions um, is that is a sanctuary jurisdiction is one that is not communicating with federal immigration authorities. They're not sharing information. There's this section of the U.S. Code that says you have to talk to immigration authorities. You can't do anything to prevent um, any law enforcement agency from talking with them. Um, and so that is sort of very narrow definition of what it means to be a sanctuary jurisdiction. But in the past, Metro has been labeled as such uh, due to this statement put out by the former sheriff um, essentially saying that they, they weren't going to honor what are called immigration detainers or so request basically from federal immigration authorities saying, hey, Metro, you have this person. Maybe they have a criminal history. We want them. We think they're deportable. We're going to we're going to can you hold them for us until we can come get them? So they basically changed their policy. And based on that policy change, they've been labeled by the federal government on multiple occasions as a sanctuary jurisdiction. So that brings us to this week when Jeff Sessions comes here and he says for the first time and quite notably that maybe the sanctuary jurisdiction label isn't right. And he said his office was looking into it. He said that he had a chance to have dinner the night before uh, this engagement earlier this week um, with Sheriff Lombardo, talk to him a little bit about the issue, hear about this program that uh, Metro actually participates in. They actually have this voluntary, voluntary program to participate with federal immigration authorities where they help them with some immigration related activities. And so Said, wow, it seems like you guys are actually sort of going above and beyond a little bit to do this. It seems like you're very cooperative, so maybe this label isn't right. And so that was sort of the news of the week that came out of that event. It's interesting, though, because this is both a legal issue and a, a, a political issue, right? And, 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 and we saw it come up, Elizabeth, dur during the legislature. Uh, where uh, you had Michael Roberson, who, who uh, uh, wanted to kill this bill uh, that, that uh, uh, Democratic Senator Ivana Cancella had, had put forward, that, that she dramatically changed, but still eventually got pulled, and law enforcement never uh, 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 actually got on, board, got on board with it. Roberson was all over that, and, 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 and he, all the way through the session, kept talking about it. Adam Laxalt, the attorney general, uh, has, has uh, been very vocal on immigration issues and recently filed a brief and even went so far as to say essentially there's going to be, I'm, I'm exaggerating only slightly, these marauding hordes from San Francisco coming here because San Francisco is a sanctuary city. We have to protect Nevada. So there's beyond the legal issues that, that, that Megan's talking about, this is going to be a big issue in Nevada probably next year. And, and at least the two races that I just mentioned, uh, Laxalt running for governor and Roberson uh, running essentially on a ticket with Laxalt for lieutenant governor. Yeah, it's a, it'll be a political football for sure. The term sanctuary cities or sanctuary state is a 
being bandied about casually um, and often, in my opinion, incorrectly. Um, I would encourage our listeners to go to the Nevada Independent site, uh, go to our search page and search on the term sanctuary cities. We have had some excellent op-eds written uh, for us by a number of people, including a, a law professor at UNLV, Michael Kagan, who knows quite a bit about these issues and runs an immigration clinic at UNLV. Um, so I just encourage people in general, educate yourself first about what a sanctuary city is and isn't, what the federal authorities are and are not asking, what Nevada in return is doing. And then, yes, we have to parse out these different issues. It's political. It's also a social issue in many people's minds. It's also a money issue because federal funding in many cases is tied to compliance. And so Metro, understandably, uh, doesn't want to be labeled uh, in any way as a sanctuary jurisdiction because federal funding is coming into them that they need to do their jobs uh, on a number of fronts as they do try to enforce immigration law uh, here. And that includes sometimes detaining uh, criminals. And sometimes it just uh, involves, you know, someone happened to get into a dispute or someone gets arrested and then it is found after the fact uh, that they're not here legally. And so there's a whole procedure and process that has to happen there. My point is that it's murky. It's complicated. It's not as simple as many of these politicians, of course, try to make it out to be uh, in their campaign comments and, and speeches. And I just encourage people to educate themselves before they kind of make a final call. Michael Kagan's piece is great. Megan's done a ton of reporting on this and trying try, to, uh, I think we did uh, 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 some explanatory journalism about it as well. But the problem is with, with the word, I, I go back to, to my days in, in, of yore being an English major and what sanctuary really means and the, and, and the fact that uh, it's conjuring up the, these images for some people. And this is what Laxalt and Roberson and others are banking on, that, w- that these cities are sanctuaries for criminals, for dangerous criminals. And so it's polls pretty well, it would seem, because I'm not exaggerating how much Roberson liked to talk about this, am I? No, no. He talked about it all the time during the session. I mean, he liked to call it the session of the felons, and he wanted to say that, you know, you're there, the Democrats are trying to protect the criminals, you know, and and all this. Um, But yeah, like you mentioned, it's it's much more complicated that, you know, what does it mean to be a sanctuary? To what extent are you a sanctuary? And some cities, you know, in the Bay Area, they they go out of their way to call themselves sanctuary cities. They want to be a sanctuary city. They like that label, you know, it's something that's been around for decades. But now with all this, you know, potential for losing federal funding, you know, I, I think you see a lot of uh, cities like, you know, or even Clark County here being sort of wary of the label. Another cool. aspect to this, too, and uh, we saw it with Jeff Sessions and his uh, remarks, but it happens frequently is you know, we we hear these anecdotes um, from folks on both sides, anecdotes of horror stories of people who were badly treated um, by law enforcement, you know, related to an immigration policy and anecdotes about uh, really horrifying crimes that are sometimes committed by people who are in the country illegally. So we hear these anecdotes on both sides being cited as if they it's the general rule. And one of the problems is that we don't have a lot of data, a lot of information on how many crimes are actually being committed in Nevada, in Clark County, and otherwise by people who are here illegally. That data is, we've tried, and it's almost impossible to get that kind of information. Um, and so it's a very emotional issue, but not with a lot of facts, I, I don't think, 
to back it up. But you mentioned anecdotes and, and, and a real anecdote where a horrific crime was committed. And I believe Sessions talked about this and, and it was the impetus for Kate's law being passed uh, recently. And again, the Democrats who voted against this, uh, this is, I think her name is Kate Steinle, who was mm -hmm. killed in, in San Francisco uh, by, by someone who was in the country uh, uh, Ill, illegally, an undocumented person. And this was used by the Republicans in Congress to pass this law. And Sessions did talk about that, did he not? Yep, he did. He talked, I mean, that's the case that's talked about frequently. You know, President Trump has talked about it. He talked about it during the campaign. It is a well-known example. And I think the interesting thing to remember with this debate is, I think pretty much, you know, Republicans and Democrats agree that, you you know, they don't want murderers in the country here if they're not supposed to be here. They don't want burglars. They don't want rapists, you know. Where, where it gets tricky is, you know, the person where, you know, maybe there was a DUI. Maybe there's someone who made, you know, a, a mistake and, and they talk about, you know, your whole life has been here. And I think that's where you find the major disagreements between Republicans and Democrats is Democrats want to say a little bit more, you know, maybe we should be giving them a second chance. This is like the only life they've known. Why are we going to send them back, you know, wherever they're from? Um, whereas I think there's sort of broad-based agreement that these violent offenders should not be here. Yeah, and I, I guess, again, talking about the political issue, and we'll wrap up this discussion on this issue, uh, Elizabeth, is is that it's hard to argue, as, as much as you're right about the data not being great, that the preponderance of the of the 12 million or whatever the number is of, of undocumented people, most of them are not dangerous criminals. And But if you can use this one anecdote, the Kate Steinle, if you can find these horrific cases, that is enough to sway public opinion and make them think that that sanctuary cities, sanctuary counties are going to, are, are, are being devised not to, and, and that these policies are controversial, not because uh, innocent law-abiding, to use the Republican term they always use, not, even if they're non-citizens, are going to be profiled by, by, by the local jurisdictions, going to become tools of, of ICE. Uh, and so that's how it becomes a, a, a political issue by anecdote that really doesn't have any basis in reality. Yeah, that's true. Uh, it, it's difficult for people, I think, to know how to feel or what to think, at least, you know, I think for thoughtful people, they stop, they may hesitate. Um, but it's all too easy uh, to turn very emotional issues like this where there are victims uh, at, at hand um, into political um, footballs that gets lobbed back and forth. And sometimes the human stories just get kind of get lost in, in the mix, um, which is a shame. But again, uh, I think the best thing for folks to do is just to read and educate themselves. One of the difficulties, though, right now is that you've got different jurisdictions all over the country with different policies in terms of who do we retain, who do we turn over to ICE? Who do we not? Who do we deport? We're not even applying uh, the laws locally on a state level or federally uh, in any kind of consistent way across this country. So I think we can forgive the voters if they're a little confused about what's going on and aren't quite sure how they feel. Uh, just one, one, one last thing on this uh, that I'll say, because when I'm uh, uh, not uh, editing pet peeves out of uh, our reporter's copy, I still <laughs> am a political analyst. And I, I just think that the, 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 even though sanctuary cities and sanctuary counties polls well for these Republicans, in a state like Nevada, where, where the Democrats have been consistent, consistently able to get out the Hispanic vote, and Republicans are losing statewide when they do, because they lose the Hispanic vote by two or three to one, I think both Roberson and Laxalt and anybody else who uses this, they are operating on such a low margin for error on these kinds of things. They're going to have to so drive up the white vote, the rural vote. Anyhow, I think it's going to be fascinating to watch how this all uh, plays out. 
Uh, Megan, since you apparently wrote uh, every story that's on the site this week, <laughs> I want to talk about a couple more of your stories uh, before Elizabeth and I celebrate an anniversary. Uh, uh, and one, one was, which is a great issue, too, and I'm, I'm not sure about the resonance of this as a political issue, but this issue of national monuments, which most people don't know that much about, and the use of the Antiquities Act, uh, which most people probably have not heard of, which Teddy Roosevelt started and that President Obama used to designate two areas in Nevada specifically, Gold Butte and Basin and Range. Uh, there was a long comment period that just ended. Uh, talk about that. You wrote a story about that. It's on, on the site as well, NevadaIndependent.com. People can look at what's going on. Right. So basically what happened earlier this year, uh, one of President Donald Trump's executive orders was authorizing the Interior Department to conduct a review of the state's national monuments over the last two decades. Um, and so he asked the Interior Department to take a look at uh, all the national parks that have been designated, um, take a look at where they're at, and, and present him with some recommendations. So as part of that, the Interior Department came up with this, this list of 27 national monuments, including two of Nevada's national monuments created, like mentioned by President Obama, um, Basin and Range and Gold Butte. And so we just finished this two-month-long comment period where the Interior Department was um, accepting comments from uh, pretty much anyone who wanted to submit something online could write them a letter and express their feelings about why national monuments are great or horrible. Um, there are a lot of strong feelings on, on both sides about whether, you know, the land should be public and open to everyone or whether maybe it should be privatized and, and sold off. And so there is a difference of opinion on both sides. Anyway, so that comment period just ended. So there's a lot of concern I think among um, especially, you know, people who are involved in the conservation efforts here about what could happen with Basin and Range and Gold Butte um, in light of all of this. We don't know to what extent the Interior Department is going to take into account all of these comments. You know, they can kind of recommend whatever they want. Um, but basically, they're, they're supposed to come up with some recommendations by August to present to the president and say, you know, this park should be smaller. This park maybe shouldn't exist entirely. And in fact, that's one of the biggest questions that we don't know. Um, no president has ever tried to remove a national monument designation. So we don't know if it's legally possible. Some scholars argue that the Antiquities Act gives the president powers to create national monuments but not take them away. And so um, some possible legal challenges could, could come out of that. If, yeah, if we have no idea what a, yeah. what a court might do. We're still not sure they're actually going to try to re rescind these. This is another interesting political issue to me, uh, Elizabeth, because there are, within the progressive coalition, there are people who really, I think this is a, a, a voting issue for them the way that, for instance, uh, a, a abortion might be for someone on the right. It is this, their single focus. You look at the ferocity with which people talk about this on Twitter and elsewhere. And, and yet, I'm not sure that it's the kind of thing that has enough, can bring enough voters to bear on either side, really. Uh, I mean, are, are Republicans really so upset about this uh, that they're going to go and go and vote against the Democratic candidate and vice versa? Well, what's your sense of the resonance of it as, as a political issue? Um, people do take it seriously, right, especially out in the, in the western United States, this, this issue of the federal government owning land or having control over land, managing land, taking land away from the people. Uh, you know, if you talk to people on, on the right, um, in their view, the federal government has long since overstepped its bounds in this area. Um, and they don't, uh, in general, they don't approve of the federal government having anything to do with uh, their, their land, and especially in a libertarian state like Nevada. And then on the other hand, as you said, 
um, within on the left in the progressive movement. Um, they're passionate about the environment, conservation, and that includes policy on national parks and monuments and a plethora uh, of other things. But as you say, you know, does that turn, does that one issue turn people out? And does that one issue sway an election or sway a particular, you know, how, how it goes for or against one candidate? I don't think so. I, I think politically, this is what we call low hanging fruit. It's very easy for people to just get mad and be either for or opposed. Uh, and it is a relatively simple issue. You're kind of either for it or, or against it. And it's not very uh, complex. But does it make a big difference in the grand scheme of, of an election or politically? I, I don't think it really does. There's a couple of nuances to this uh, uh, one, though, I, I think, Megan. One is that the issue of Yucca Mountain has been wrapped into basin and range because it appears, at, le at least some people think that maybe the, the, that the boundaries were created in a certain way to, to block the easy uh, rail shipments of nuclear waste to Yucca Mountain, correct? Yep, that's correct. So there, one of the one of the major routes is from Caliente to Yucca, Ma Yucca Mountain, and it would actually run through. I want to say it's 300 miles ish of basin and range. Um, and so now that's obviously not a possibility with basin and range existing. So it sort of cuts off that route. Um, there is another route, sort of the northern route that goes up through Hawthorne and Tonopah and comes down around that way. So there is another option. Um, but there was a lot of talk about basin and range being created as a way to sort of stave off uh, the ever ongoing Yucca Mountain battle. <laughs> I assume that if they ever do pass Yucca Mountain, they're going to find a way to get that waste uh, to, 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 yeah, to the site. Will. One other quick thing just to mention is I remember when this first uh, happened and, and the governor, uh, who is a Republican, I believe, uh, was asked for a comment about this. And he didn't specifically say, this is Bayesian and Range. He didn't specifically say, I'm against Bayesian and Range. What he said, and what a lot of Republicans have said, is it's the process. In other words, Congress wasn't included. The president just used the Antiquities Act unilaterally. Uh, I would have loved for them to have been around when Teddy Roosevelt was president to see what Teddy Roosevelt would have done to them. But that is, there's a process argument they presented as well, right? Right. And people have talked about that, about the Antiquities Act, are there changes that Congress wants to make, you know, to that, to how this process happens as a whole, because it has given presidents a lot of discretion over creating these monuments. Um, you know, there's a lot of public conversation about them, you know, even even if it's the president's choice to do it. You know, there's been discussions around both of these monuments for years. But of course, there's space for changing that if Congress decides that's not how it wants monuments to cre be created in the future. One thing that will cause this whole issue to blow up blow up uh, for our election next year, you alluded to, which is that if Trump decides to redraw the boundaries uh, of Basin and Range to enable that route from Caliente to Yucca at the same time or on the tail of uh, the fact that he allocated money in his federal budget for restarting uh, conversations in the process at Yucca, that is going to be a huge political issue in Nevada. And it's also going to be a huge legal issue, and it's going to drain that Yucca Mountain Fund uh, and make some lawyers uh, uh, a lot of money, I would think. All right, last story I want to talk about uh, is, is a story that it's going to affect everybody in, in, in Clark County uh, and maybe eventually Washoe County if they, if they get involved. And this already affects some rural areas. And this is issue of there was 270-odd uh, 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 precinct locations. They're going to they're gonna essentially cut that almost by two-thirds, right, Megan, and do, do these so-called vote centers now. What are What's going to be different for people and why are they doing this? Right. So Nevada already arguably uses this vote center concept. If anyone has ever early voted, it's basically the same concept where there are certain locations that anyone can go 
uh, during the primary right now um, to go, or not during the primary, during early voting and cast their ballot anywhere. So if you're shopping at the Galleria Mall, you can go cast your ballot there. There's trailers sometimes set up in a shopping center parking lot. You can go cast your ballot there. It doesn't matter where you live. Any vote center that's open is eligible for you to go cast your ballot. So that exists right now for early voting. What Clark County is doing is now making that available for election day. So long gone will be the days of precinct voting where, you know, say you're, you got to work 30 minutes across town. So you get up 30 minutes early to drive to your local precinct at the local high school and go cast your ballot. Or you have to come home early from work to cast your ballot at that one high school that you're, it's the only place you're allowed to go. Now you will have 160 vote centers across uh, the whole county where you can go and cast your ballot on election day. So it's not a problem if you work, if you live in Henderson, you work in North Las Vegas, you can go cast your ballot on your lunch break in North Las Vegas. It just gives voters a lot more flexibility. And the main reason why this has taken some time to sort of kick in is that um, it's expensive from a technology perspective. You need to, you have to have the capability to have votes registered in real time because you don't want to be able to go vote at one voting location, drive two miles, go try to vote at the next voting location. So it's crucial that that technology exists to ensure that everyone's uh, only voting once. And then it's just sort of a, a logistical challenge to try and implement that. Um, the county has to plan ahead of time, try to figure out which vote centers are going to be the most successful, where to devote their resources. Um, but at the end of the day, it's supposed to be less of a headache for county election officials. It's because there's so, so I guess I didn't realize it was 160. So it's not as, it's not as dramatic as I thought, but still it's 100 fewer locations. Exactly. Are there, is there concern that the, you have that many fewer locations that somehow that's not a good thing because there's not as many places to vote? Well, and so that's one of the things is they they took a look at the whole map of what they had, you know, the existing polling sites, and then they looked at the sites they have for early voting, and they still have the ability to sort of expand voting sites, the ones that they think are going to be the most popular, maybe the malls or something like that, or there's Centennial Center, Shopping Center up kind of in the Northwest that's really popular during early voting. So they can devote extra resources to those sites that they think are going to be um, heavily used. And then they also, um, at this presentation they had earlier this week, they had a map of the whole county and which which parts of the county um, participate or tend to vote most on election day instead of early voting. So they've allocated additional resources. I remember just looking at the map and sort of in Henderson, there was this dark purple cluster where people apparently are really eager to vote on election day. They don't like early voting. Maybe they listen to your, your tirades against early voting. <laughs> tirades! And, uh, <laughs> and they've decided election day voting is the way to go. And so they've added additional vote centers in those parts of town because they know that people like voting on election day there. I find as a, as a parent of a millennial and as a editor who has mainly millennials that very few people listen to my tirade. <laughs> <laughs> so let, let's conclude this podcast by talking about uh, as people are listening to this now, uh, it, it's going to be upon July 17th that we're going to have a big celebration of what, Elizabeth? Uh, six months since the Nevada Independent website launched, uh, since we started covering news statewide in depth uh, at the legislature, as our loyal followers since the beginning already know, um, but in depth across the state on government, politics, policy, uh, as well as education and business. We're now dabbling into um, some stories and very, very happy. And we couldn't be more thrilled with our website stats. And uh, we are we are going to cover a lot of different things now that the session uh, is over. You have like what sixteen beats now, something uh, like that. So I definitely can't count them on my hands, at least. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, uh, you and your and your colleagues are are thrilled. 
uh, with, with with your employment status. Is yeah, that correct? It's been it's been great. I think we've all been kind of trying Senate. to recover from the legislative session. And Do you feel like you're being asked questions under duress? Yeah, yeah like <laughs> I'm just still no stung. pressure or anything. I'm still stung by the early voting tirade comments, and so I'm putting her on the spot. But no, we we are super. Elizabeth and I are super proud of of, of what the staff has been done. You guys have all I've said it many times publicly and privately. You've exceeded all of my expectations. What also has exceeded my expectations is how as a a lot of people have said through the legislative coverage, we have become the go-to place, I think, for a lot of people who are interested in these kinds of issues. And we're going to be rolling out uh, uh, some new features very, very soon. I urge everybody listening to, to check out our podcast. We're going to do something with uh, uh, people uh, named in our stories that has never been done anywhere that I don't think you're going you're going to have the capability to learn a lot more information uh, about uh, th- those people. So stay tuned for that. And uh, happy six-month anniversary uh, to to all of us. So that's all the time we have uh, for this edition of the Indie Matters podcast, but we always want to know what you think. If you have ideas, criticism, or even praise, email us. It's ideas at thenvindy.com. Check out the site. I'll mention it again, the nevadaindependent.com. Also, Rate this podcast on on iTunes. Go and listen. You can also find us on Google Play and all kinds of other sites I always forget to name, but at some point I will remember all of them. You remember any of them, Megan? Uh, No, quite honestly. We're going to have to ask Joey. I have to ask Joey, but I do want to thank... Uh, 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 Megan and Elizabeth for, for being here. Thanks to both of you uh, for being here. I want to thank the wonderful uh, folks here at KUNV on the campus of UNLV uh, for becoming our Vegas uh, base for, for doing this podcast. Uh, uh, they are just great, and, and they, they always provide us uh, with uh, a great facility and water, both of which help us sound better. And as always, I do want to thank Joey Lovato, our great uh, UNR intern who makes, makes us, as I always like to say, sound podcast smooth. I'll never sound podcast smooth as these guys know. I'm John Ralston. Thanks for listening to Indie Matters. We'll talk to you next week. Obviously, but my favorite animal because you have to have like a unique favorite animal. So, no. <laughs> my favorite animal is the red panda. They're amazing. There are like adorable videos of them playing in the snow. They're like Japanese videos. I don't know why, but it's like some place in Japan where they have red pandas running around in the snow and they're super adorable.